0: How do our brains change when we become parents? What does having baby brain really mean? And how can fathers use the science of bonding to feel close to their babies? I'm Anna Machen and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. In this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains from before birth to after death. And this week, we're looking at one of my favourite subjects, the neuroscience of parenthood.
1: He's just impossibly small. I mean, that's what I thought. And floppy. Yeah.
0: (laughs) They're so floppy. We also see a reduction in testosterone in new
2: fathers. There is a reduction in volume in regions that are associated with social understanding. This is how we're wired.
0: I'm the mum to two girls, and like a lot of parenthood researchers, I got interested in studying it after I had my first daughter. I watched this amazing bond form between her and my husband. And when I got back to work, I thought I'd take a little look about what we knew about the science behind being a human father, which we'll hear about later. Now, in this episode, we're going to talk about the neuroscience of being a parent. But as we all know, there are many routes to parenthood. Some of what we'll discuss will be particularly relevant to those who have been pregnant. But what we know from the science is that our brains don't care if we are genetically related to the children we care for. And the brain changes that happen when we become parents will happen whether we're biological parents, adoptive parents, single parents, gay or lesbian parents, or step parents. A parent is someone who steps up and does the job. Now, it's been over a decade since I had a small baby in the house, but for others, the realities of new parenthood are just setting in.
3: Meet Alex.
1: I'm 33 and I'm a radio producer and I live in London.
3: And Amy. I'm a software developer but currently on maternity leave. um, I'm also 33, also living in London. And Frank. So Frank is 11 months old. He is... Quite a sociable being, I would say. Quite interested in things, as you can see. Frank is also a budding radio DJ. Oh, oh my gosh. What's he
1: played? Why is he playing Adele? <laughs> Sorry. I don't even know where that's come from.
3: Spotify?
0: So, everyone has their own story of how they felt in the days and weeks after they first became parents. But I suspect... Alex and Amy's experience will ring true to many.
3: I was very emotional. (laughs) I was, yeah, I don't think I've ever cried so much. (laughs) I'd swing wildly from like, wow, I've made this person. He's incredible. Look at him to, Oh my gosh, what have I done? (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing.
1: I remember when we got back to the ward and the midwife left. And I turned to Amy and went, "So, does anyone tell us what to do now, or is this essentially it now? Like, yeah, this is it. Yeah. This is this is it now." <laughs> Which was like, "Cool, right? Okay." And then, yeah, the days and weeks afterwards, I remember doing like skin to skin, watching TV with him. Yeah, he's just impossibly small. I mean, that's what I thought. And floppy. Yeah,
3: <laughs> they're so floppy.
0: And actually, it's that floppiness and defencelessness of newborns that makes us humans the parents we are. I sat down
4: with our producer Eva to talk about it. If we look across the animal kingdom, we see some animals that really just have babies and send them off into the world um, with no protection or particular nurturing. And we see other species like humans that have this huge period of invested care. How did we evolve to become like this and why? We are reasonably individual in the way that we parent for two
0: major, major reasons. And it's just anatomical quirks that have occurred in our evolution. First of all, we're bipedal and we are, there are very few completely bipedal mammals. And secondly, we have enormous brains. So our brains are six times bigger than they should be for a mammal of our body size at maturity. And so this causes a problem in terms of childbirth because you can't, fit the massive brain through a bipedal pelvis it's very narrow without killing baby and mummy so what we had to do over time is is natural selection selected for women who birth their babies early
4: mm-hmm.
0: and we are we birth our babies far too early in the in the gestational period we should be more attuned with sort of an elephant at about sort of 18 months than, oh than my we gosh. are i know hideous That's eh? a long time um <laughs> then we are at nine months so we birth these incredibly dependent babies and what most animals have is they either have a period of rapid brain growth in the womb or they have a period of rapid brain growth after birth we've got both and particularly after birth we have a period of rapid brain growth for about two years to try and get us up to this massive brain that we should have and for that reason we need a lot of investment now initially we got that investment by banding together as females in our evolutionary path and, and that really worked from about sort of 1.8 million years ago to about half a million years ago we just banded together female kin to raise our children and that seemed to work but about half a million years ago we went through a massive increase in brain size again And suddenly it just wasn't enough for female kin to help each other. We needed somebody else to step in. And that was dad because he Mm. was the next genetically closest individual to that baby. And fathers evolved to invest because otherwise their genetic offspring were not going to survive. So they gave up what most mammals have, which is men just spread their seed, many, many children and leave it to the females. That's 95% of mammals. That's what happens. But in 5%, dad has to stick around to make sure his genes survive. So he goes into this, Thing where for a greater or lesser period of time, he has a pair bond with one female and produces an offspring that he invests in. And that's very rare in the mammalian kingdom. You see it in birds a lot, but not in mammals. And the reason why it's evolved in our line is because of bipediality and massive brains, basically.
4: So if we go back to the very beginning... Is there a difference in the brains of people who are parents and people who are not parents? Yes, there is. So
0: the evolution doesn't leave things to chance. So it's not going to give you this incredibly dependent, useless baby, which is afraid is what human babies are like, without in some way priming you biologically and psychologically to be able to cope. And so over time, natural selection has selected people who go through these changes to enable them to do that. So we see changes in the brain. The key areas of the brain that change are obviously within the very core of the brain. That's your limbic area. That's your unconscious brain. And that's where things like nurturing behaviours are, um, attachment behaviours sit there. And also things like risk detection, which is really important as a parent. So we see changes in the brain to prime those areas. And we also see changes in the cortical areas of the brain. That's your conscious brain. And that's in areas related to things like planning and problem solving, which as a parent you have to be terribly good at, particularly as it takes you at least three hours to get out the front door. And also areas relating to empathy. And so we see changes in the brain to enable parents to be better at those bits of, of being a parent. And we see the changes in the, in men and in women. So whilst we always talk talk about, you know, women going undergoing biological changes, actually men go through the same ones. We also see changes in hormonal changes in both parents. So obviously we have big floods of oestrogen in women, but we also see a reduction in testosterone in new fathers. And that enables the father to shift his focus from mating, for which testosterone is brilliant, to actually focusing and investing in the family where it's not so brilliant. And we know that men with lower testosterone are much more motivated to care for children. They're much more sensitive to their needs. Wow! And we also know that testosterone, if it's very high, it tends to block the impact of dopamine and oxytocin which are some of the key bonding hormones so by getting that drop in testosterone which we see in all fathers it can be up to a third then we see that these bonding hormones are more effective so dad is is again primed to bond to his child so they're quite striking biological changes actually
4: And what initiates that change in a father? Is it being around a person that he has made pregnant? Is it being around a pregnant person? Or is it being around a newborn? Like when along the trajectory of becoming a parent does this occur? Do you know, what you've asked a question which we're still currently researching.
0: We're not sure. That kind of question requires a longitudinal study, which means we have to catch these men before they become fathers. We have to then follow them whilst they're with their pregnant partner. And then we have to follow them once the baby's born and when we look at comparative studies in nature it's really really tricky so when you look at the small mammals it occurs being with the pregnant female but actually in our fellow primates, of which there are very few that invest in their offspring and investing fathers, but in those that do, it actually happens via interaction with the child. We know that, that fatherhood, that the brain changes in particular are caused by interaction in men mm-hmm. because they don't go through pregnancy and they don't go through childbirth and breastfeeding. So they're definitely caused by interaction. So it's quite likely that the mechanism of testosterone drop is also an interactive thing. And what's interesting and what supports that idea is that that drop is permanent as long as you stay in contact with your child. You don't even have to live with your child. But if you're a dad who sees your kid every weekend or whatever, then you're still going to keep that drop. But if you stop, your testosterone goes back up. So that suggests that it's more likely to be a mechanism
4: of interaction. Do you think that's something that some men might find scary to hear? <laughs> you know, my testosterone is going to go down and it's never going to go back up. From the fathers that you've worked with, have you discussed that phenomenon with them? Have they had any... Thoughts and feelings? Has it been a surprise to the men you've spoken to?
0: I'm not sure it's been a surprise because a lot of men, when they become fathers for the first time, do notice that they are, for example, more emotional. They're much more emotional. They're much more reactive to things that they would never react to before in an emotional way. Like, you know, kids on the telly, you know, natural disasters, whatever it might be. So they find themselves to be much more sensitive, which suggests this this idea that they have got lower testosterone. Yes, yeah, sometimes when I do public talks on it, you get a groan from the audience when you tell them that. But what I always say is, but in return you get the most amazing bond with your baby because suddenly that dopamine and oxytocin are going to suddenly be able to affect your brain much more powerfully. So you're going to get this lovely bond and you're going to get that wonderful dopamine reward sensation. So there is, there is a trade-off that comes with having that drop in testosterone. And both Amy and Alex are very conscious of the ways in which parenthood has changed them.
1: Certain things, like I definitely am more affected by things I see in the news relating to children probably think about the future more than I did and just thinking you know relating them back to him how will this affect him and then in, in terms of bonding yeah I, I felt bonded to him straight away really helped they look like me he didn't feel like a stranger
3: I would say it was sort of innate in the sense of he'd just come out of me <laughs> and I think you know sort of feeding brings you together really early on and yeah we did you know do skin to skin at home we like sort of put stuff in front of the windows and we're just sort of lying around in bed with star trek on (laughs) with frank i can feel his love for me and it's sort of it's obviously reciprocated and it's just an innate sort of love and that bonded feeling is down to some of the same
4: chemicals we've heard about on this show before and oxytocin and dopamine are two chemicals that we talked about in our love interview also. So is the system that you have for forming strong bonds and attachments with your baby, is that essentially the same system that you use to form an attachment with a loved one or a partner?
0: It's yeah, it's exactly the same set of neurochemicals. What's interesting about the parental experience, though, particularly for women, obviously, is that you get this massive hit of oxytocin, particularly in childbirth and breastfeeding, because that's the hormone of labor. It induces contractions of the womb. It also is the one that allows the letdown of milk. So what's interesting is something that actually evolved to enable the birth of a child and the feeding of a child has this side effect of also giving women compared to men this massive head start in bonding with their baby because they get it during childbirth. And obviously, childbirth is monumentally painful. And so there's a lot of beta endorphin around as well. So they do get a head start. And that's what's quite interesting about the bonding profile or hormonal profile of particularly women
4: when they become mothers. And is that quite consistent across mothers or across parents in general? Or do you see fluctuations depending on culture, for example, or depending on environmental situation? Is there sort of a parenthood slate? This is what's gonna probably happen to your brain and these are the chemicals that will probably be involved and what can cause those chemicals to be different we are all individuals
0: it's not a cultural thing it's very much an individual thing and it's driven by two things firstly partly by your genes so there are some genes particularly oxytocin receptor gene and one called uh, cd38 which is associated with the transport of oxytocin around the body which have an influence in sensitive parenting. So there are versions of this, I don't really like the term, but there are versions of it known as the risk genes, which as you carry those, you are going to find it harder to be a sensitive parent, possibly. Obviously, it's not deterministic, but it has a role to play. So part of it is genetic, and obviously that is heritable from your parents. The other thing is how you were parented obviously has a big role to play because. Your brain developed very rapidly during the first two years of your life. How you were cared for, parented at that point, actually underpins the actual structure of your brain. So if you were parented in a very sensitive way, we get lots of rich, lovely, dense, grey and white matter in the areas of the brain associated with nurturing, with parenting, with social relationships. We see lovely high levels of oxytocin and and beta-endorphin and dopamine released when you're interacting. If you have a less sensitive parenting experience, then unfortunately we don't see the same thing. And in extreme circumstances, we have neuronal death in those areas. So how you are parented and your genes feed into your then experience of being a parent later on and how easy, how difficult you find it. Some people find building those secure attachments to their child, that sensitive parenting, that reciprocal relationship, easier to build than others. So in some ways, the very structure of your parental brain is influenced by how you yourself were parented. But actually, your brain structure itself also changes when you become a parent too. As I heard from Adi Yanov, a senior research associate at the Center for Developmental Social Neuroscience at Reichmann University in Israel. The interesting thing is that there
2: is a reduction in gray matter in the brains of mothers right after the first pregnancy. And this reduction is very interesting because it is in specific regions that are associated with social understanding, with what we call theory of mind, our ability to understand the thoughts and the the actions of other people. So it's kind of a paradox because on the one hand, there is a reduction in volume in regions that are associated with social understanding. And on the other hand, we all know that mothers become more attached to the own baby, they have to understand by signals and cues which are non-verbal from the infant what does he wants in the early uh, days. This paradox is apparently not paradoxical at all because these changes in the brain help mothers to be more tuned to their own baby, to understand the infant better.
0: Although a reduction in grey matter can sound like a bad thing, Adi assured me that it can also mean that the brain has actually become more mature and specialised for that activity. For example, the parent's brain has become so hyper-focused on reading social cues from the baby that it streamlines the process so that areas of the brain become more efficient and, therefore. Smaller. But there is other
2: thing that is associated with new parenthood because it can be very, very stressful to become a parent. We can be preoccupied with thoughts that, is my baby all right? Am I a good mother? Is he breathing? We see this increased stress level in new parents. Actually, we had a study in which we compared new lovers, which form romantic attachment, and new parents that had their baby uh, four to six months prior to the time we measured them. And we took blood samples from the new lovers and from the new parents. And we examined three biomarkers of three systems. The first, oxytocin, the love hormone, the trust hormone. And as expected, we saw that the levels of oxytocin were higher in the blood of new parents, but even higher for new lovers because they're in love. But we also measured IL-6. IL-6 is a marker of the immune system, which is associated with stress that we experience. And the levels of IL-6 were very high in the group of the new parents, because becoming a parent is associated with stress, with thoughts, with the need to understand these small creatures which is totally dependent on you. And we also measured beta-endorphin. Beta-endorphin is a biomarker which is associated to what we call the reward system. It's the system that is uh, responsible for our motivation to get more of something that we like. It can be eating sweets and it can be a relationship. So in the new parents, we saw increased levels of beta-endorphin, which we can interpret as some kind of compensation mechanism. To compensate for the high levels of stress, the reward system is also in action. So although it can be very stressful, very tiring, we want more and more of the interaction with our infant. So we will be investing the, the effort, we will be interacting more And when we get something as a smile or even a gaze, it can be so rewarding for us. So we saw this interplay between these three systems, the affiliation system, the immune system, which is associated with the stress system, and the reward system in the physiology of new parents.
0: And I think, yeah, we can all relate to that, can't we? When It's three o'clock in the morning, the baby's crying, you're like, oh, I'm so stressed, I want to go, and then you go in and they smile at you. And it's like everything is forgiven. You might have got me out of bed at three o'clock in the morning, but actually, it's okay. Exactly. <laughs> so, when you neuroimage a parent's brain, how do you do that? What sort of tasks do you give them?
2: So, we put them uh, in an MRI scanner and we do what we call the fMRI, functional MRI. In functional MRI, we track the brain activity during a task. And usually, we give them a very passive task. We just show them stimuli that are related either to their own infant or videos of unrelated mothers and infants. And the interesting thing is that there is a system in the brain, a collection of brain regions that are activated when a parent is exposed to visual or or audio stimuli that are related to his or her infant. So among these regions, we have limbic regions, which are deep inside our brain. These are the regions that are associated with emotions. And these are regions which are also very old in in evolutionary uh, point of view. But we also have other regions. There is a region called the anterior cingulate cortex. It is right in the middle of our brain and it is associated with uh, decision-making and with social understanding. And another very uh, important uh, brain region is the insula, which is associated with interoception and extraception, So it's sensing our internal body rhymes such as breathing, heartbeat, and also understanding and sensing stimuli from the external environment and combining them. And we see that these regions are activated when parents see their own infant. They will be more activated compared to the situation when you see an unfamiliar
0: infant. And that intense level of focus on the child has changed Amy in ways that she finds surprising.
3: I've had a couple of keeping in touch days with work recently and I was scrolling back in the chat and I just didn't recognize the person. I, I, was, I was, you know, making light-hearted banter about croissants or something, I don't know. You know, something completely frivolous and, you know, in my head for the last 11 months has been filled with sleep and feeding and weaning and caring for a child and I feel like I've had such a small percent of my headspace available to think about anything else. And that's down to, you guessed it, oxytocin
0: what's really interesting about the parenting brain is that i think because particularly the high levels of oxytocin it becomes very focused on just that baby so what you tend to find in new parents and and you know sometimes when you talk to new parents like all i seem to talk about is my baby all i seem to focus on is my baby and that's actually a, a hormonal thing particularly with oxytocin oxytocin tends to make your brain very focused upon one social relationship if it's at very high levels and so what tends to happen in the parenting brain is you still manage to parent. You still manage to keep your baby safe. You still manage to nurture it, even though you probably are exhausted, because basically you've actually cut off everybody else for a period of time, and that's the only thing that you are focusing on. You're sort of there's you're preoccupied completely with that one social relationship.
4: And is that sort of obsessive feeling towards your baby, and feeling like that's the only thing you can talk about, is that what? People mean when they say they have baby brain, because I've had friends who say, "Oh, I can't remember anything else. I keep forgetting really obvious things." um, When they have when they have new children, do we know what's happening in the brain during the baby brain phase?
0: We think baby brain is two things. Yes, it's partly hormonal because you've got very high levels of oxytocin, as I said, and you've also got the the lower levels of serotonin that occur when you fall in love, which makes you obsessed. But also, whilst we see increases in grey and white matter in some areas of the brain, we see decreases in other areas of the brain, which includes things like like the hippocampus which is where your memory is so yes it is true to a certain extent that because you're so focused upon this little individual your other skills which maybe were quite sharp beforehand in particularly things like memory and organization in areas which aren't related to the baby become less effective essentially and it's just evolution's way of making sure that you invest everything you have at this moment in this baby and from personal experience that does become better again once your child is of a certain age even though I must admit
4: even today I still have to write long lists about things. So in society sometimes there's quite a clear delineation of this is what mum's brain is like and what mum's role as a parent is like and this is what dad's brain is like and what dad's role as a parent is like. How true is that? What's really interesting is, is the roles we give mums and
0: dads, particularly dads, are largely culturally driven. They're not driven by biology. There are many societies in the world, particularly hunter-gatherer societies, where we don't see the division of labour that you see in, for example, the West. There's a Congolese tribe called the Akka, And they are net hunters. And net hunting is something that the whole family do. And men and women go together, children go with the family. And because of that, men are as in contact with their children as women are. And in those societies, actually, it's very egalitarian. Mm. Men do just as much childcare as women do, because that's how the economic structure allows them to do. In the West, because we have a system where we have a a very strong patriarchy, we also have this system where, obviously, women birth the children and men go out to work and earn the money. Because we're in a capitalist system, somebody has to earn money. And what that tends to mean is men go because women are bound slightly by their biology, by the fact that they are the ones that get pregnant and the ones that breastfeed, and therefore men go out to work. And we've, over time, had this delineation of the fact that men work, women care. And that's the way it goes. But it's a it's a cultural thing. It's an economic thing. It's not actually caused by biology at all. We're seeing a slight change now in that within the West, with increased understanding of the roles that fathers take. And actually, when we allow fathers to be hands-on caregivers, actually they are as good as women at doing it. It's just they're culturally
4: restricted. So essentially, a dad's brain and a mum's brain could be equivalent in terms of what sort of caregiver they're going to be. Completely. And we know that particularly, for example, studies on gay fathers,
0: where there isn't actually a woman involved. If we look at the brains of primary caregiving gay fathers, they are pretty much the same as a mum's brain in terms of activations we see, when they're caring for their child the the human brain is amazingly plastic and the ultimate aim of any human parent is to raise that child to survive that's what evolution wants you to do just keep on passing those genes down the generation and therefore the human brain is highly adaptable to making sure that anyone can actually parent a child you know we see it in adoptive brains you know we see it in the fact that a human child will attach to literally anyone it doesn't have to be the parent because they are little attachment machines, because they need to survive. So no, there is nothing that biologically that prevents a father from nurturing, from caring as much as a, as a mother does.
4: It sounds like, um, well, it just reminds me of t- baby ducks and imprinting mm. on the first duck they see. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, exactly. Is, and human the human babies are amazing. You know, they are, unlike a lot of, particularly the smaller mammals, they are capable of attaching to several people at once as well. So talking about ducks, they attach to one other person duck whoever they see um human babies are better at actually having multiple attachments because basically they're going i'm going to survive and i'm going to make sure i've got as many people who will input into my survival as possible and amy and alex are going to do their best to try and create
3: an egalitarian parenting situation themselves so um we're both going to work four days a week and it was actually really important to me that we both looked after him at least one day a week and it wasn't just all falling to me. I want him to have that relationship with both of us, view us both as primary caregivers or whatever the right terminology is.
1: I'm really looking forward to it. I think if all of my time with Frank was confined to evenings and weekends, I think I'd be missing out on a lot. And my dad was a stay-at-home dad. He was a trailblazer. Not many dads in the playground after school. I want to give him a bit of what my dad gave me. It always, it always really annoyed me when you'd hear people say "house husband" and then sort of snigger afterwards. Because whether whether you're a father or a mother, I think if you are at home bringing up a child, that's a that's a job. That's a often incredibly hard and rewarding thing to do
0: but it's true that there can be some differences in mum and dad's brain.
4: So if mum brain and dad brain can be very similar, do we see any differences in how their brains are activated when they're interacting with their children?
0: We do. And that's because while structurally they're similar, from an activation point of view, they're not necessarily similar. So we do see some synchrony. We see similar activations in areas related to empathy, for example. But there is quite a distinct difference and it's, It's a distinct difference in what is the peak of activation when they're interacting. So both men and women, we see activation in the limbic area, in the core of the brain, and we see activation particularly in the prefrontal cortex, which is the social area of the brain. However where the peak of activation is differs. So if we look at a mum's brain when she's interacting with her child, the peak in activation is in the limbic area of the brain, in the areas of the brain related to nurturing and in particular to risk detection. If we look at the dad's brain, the peak in activation is actually in the cortical area of the brain. And it's particularly in the prefrontal cortex, which is related to relationships, to social cognition. Now, one of the reasons for this is that the mum brain is much more ancient Mm. than the dad's brain. So mum-child relationships, mum-child nurturing is as ancient as time. I mean, I don't know how many millions and millions and millions of years it goes back, but it goes a long way. Particularly in the human line, obviously, father-child interactions are only half, you know, 500 million years old, which in evolutionary time is a blink, basically. So that's partly the reason. But it's also because of the slightly different roles and different attachments that we see mums and dads build so a mum's attachment to their child is very much based on nurture it's quite an exclusive relationship it's quite inward looking it's about taking the child to you and saying right you're secure with me stick with me and you're you're going to be okay dad's also is based on nurture but it's actually also based on challenge and the challenge in particular that dad's underpin is the challenge of entering the world beyond the family so families are quite a benign environment generally we're quite nice in families and we tolerate behaviours maybe that other people won't tolerate with the child when you go out into the big wide world you have to learn the rules of society you have to learn how to get along with people to be pro-social and dad's attachment is very much based on nurture and that challenge Mm. and that's why we see this activation in the prefrontal cortex because actually he's the one who's going right gonna push you gonna put you in the place of a few risks and you're gonna learn to operate in the big wide world what's really interesting is if So because people then say to me, oh, okay, but what happens if there's a single parent or there's gay or lesbian couples? Well, what we see then actually, and this is again shown from this wonderful study done on primary caretaking gay fathers, is we see activations in both areas of the brain, Mm. peak activations. The plasticity of brain has allowed them to have the mum's peak, which is in the core, and the dad's peak, which is in the prefrontal cortex. And that's fascinating because it's actually allowing that one individual to do all the jobs that needs to be done. But yes, you do see this this difference in brain activation. And that's important evolutionarily because evolution hates redundancy. It's not going to cause two people to evolve to have exactly the same role because that's pointless. We don't need that. We need a really complex developmental environment for that child. And therefore we're going to say, right, dad, you're kind of going to do this bit over here and mum, you're going to do this bit over here. But if either of them aren't there, well, then you're going to do all of it.
4: So if mothers get a bit of a head start in bonding with the baby, perhaps through pregnancy or through breastfeeding, what can dads do in terms of bonding with the baby?
0: Do you know something? Bonding for fathers can sometimes be a really worrying time. A lot of the dads I talk to in pregnancy, it's like their number one worry of how they're going to bond and how they're going to develop this bond. And it is harder for dads because they don't get that head start, that massive hormonal rush. But dads build their bond through interaction with their baby. So what's important, two things. First of all, it can take longer because newborn babies are pretty uninteractive, actually, to be honest. (laughs) They don't do a lot. They sleep, they feed, they poo, they cry. That's about it. Um, So those early months can be hard. And a lot of my fathers describe a slight delay in bonding. And what Mm. I want to say to anybody who's at this stage is do not panic. It's perfectly normal. It does not mean your baby doesn't like you. And it does not mean that your partner, your female partner is like the gold standard of bonding. It's going to take longer because you have to interact. In those early weeks, find something you can do which involves touch. Skin to skin really good. Baby massage is brilliant. Being the bath time person is brilliant because they all involve touch. So try and do something like that and make it yours. And that will really help you bond with your baby. Secondly, there's a massive change at about six months when suddenly, developmentally, your baby will start interacting with you and you'll start getting that give and take. They'll start babbling, they'll smile, they'll be pleased to see you. And you can start doing that very gentle back and forth of play with the baby. And a lot of my fathers say, yes, they do feel a bond with their baby when their baby is born. But actually, the bond they feel at six months and onwards is categorically different. It's much, much deeper And that's because they've started building this really deep, interactive, attachment-based bond with two personalities spending time together. And Alex is having a great time getting to know Frank.
1: We play with blocks. We play with stacking rings.
3: I mean, he's a big peepo peepo player. Yeah.
1: (laughs) He loves that. We've got this little uh, chiffon, like, you know, translucent material that you put over your face. And he pulls it off you, but he much prefers putting it on himself. And yeah, it was great when it started because it was um, a really slow reveal. He'd bring the chiffon down with this real sort of like kind of uh, mischievous look on his face.
3: And Amy has her favourite bits of parenting too. I think it's sort of seeing his little personality coming out, definitely of late. I'm enjoying that. I love looking at him and seeing Alex. Um, Like There's some days where it's like looking at a baby with Alex's head on. (laughs) but It's it's nice, like, sort of that family connection. He's a pretty happy chappy, so that's nice. Trying to make him laugh, finding new games to play with him. Yeah, that's definitely the best part making him laugh number one thank you so
0: much to amy and alex and adi yanov and of course the marvellous frank for speaking to me for this episode we're back in a few weeks to explore the neuroscience of sight in the meantime join us in two weeks for another one of our focus episodes where eva's diving into the world of chronic stress and burnout I'm Anna and this is How We're Wired. How We're Wired is a fresh air production for the Bertorelli Foundation. It's produced by Eva Higginbotham. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode.